0: Thank you very much. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. It's a real privilege. Um, I actually didn't mean, t- I wasn't unhappy calling me young man. I was actually, uh, quite enjoyed it. So don't, don't stop. Um, as uh, Wally said, uh, I'm sorry, my wife can't be here this morning, but she just needed to be at the church this morning just for, for continuity and certain duties that she had. Um, I do feel like I come home. When I, when I come here, I have had engagement with this church over time and nice to look out and, and recognize faces that I'm familiar with. Never make the mistake of saying "old faces," just faces that I'm familiar with, uh, and and well, as well as family members like Ellen, over there. So, um, whenever I do these multiple Sunday morning services, I always feel so sorry for those who have to sit through more than one. So, I'm not going to change anything from what I said this morning. I'm not going to try and get clever. But for those few people who are hearing this for the second time this morning, I, I really um, I, I admire your your perseverance. Um, <laughs> But as I spoke this morning, I must say, uh, you know, you prepare and you carry something in your heart. But as you speak it, perhaps I just became aware that it is it is cutting on some points. And I just want to say that uh, anything that might step on your toes this morning is stepping on my toes too. Uh, my toes are, are also uh, under the same. If I speak about privilege, I'm speaking about myself first and foremost because I'm incredibly privileged. And, um, you know, I was saying that... Uh, Last year in December, um, I preached a pre-Christmas word, and um, at the end of the service, someone put up their hand, and we do try and encourage engagement in our in our meetings, that people are not passive in the, in the congregation. I'm not suggesting that anyone interfere with me this morning. Um, but uh, after having preached, this person said, um, you know, in light of political development in this past week, which was the... Um, redeployment, firing, sacking of and all that went with it, um, how should we as Christians pray and act and speak in South Africa at this time? Uh, At first I was a bit disappointed because it had nothing to do with what I had spoken about, but it made me aware that, uh, of course, we carry um, events of the nation within us wherever we are. And so I formulated a response and um, sent it out to the church. And so this morning I really want to answer that question. How then should we live as Christians in South Africa in 2016? And I don't for one moment think that this is the complete picture. I don't think that I have all of it. Are, I have a slice of the power, and I'm sure that all of you are carrying other various slices of the power, which, if I were to hear, would be helpful to, to ourselves as well. So I do acknowledge that up front. But we do have to acknowledge that we live in a nation that is not short of um, challenges Uh, We face the news every day, we face the newspapers, the News 24, however we receive it, we watch uh, the television, Uh, we part of discussions and dinner parties and lunches and coffees, and uh, we are aware that there are many perspectives, there are concerns, and that South Africa in one sense faces a crossroads again. And so... What I would like to do, I hope that I can instill some faith in us today. I hope that we can walk out of here with some faith in our hearts, then I'll feel that mission accomplished. Before I get to the, the four points that I want to make, I just want to use two, two points as part of my introduction. The first one is a story about New York City, which is based on fact. And that is that in 1860, okay, I'm uh, trusting before all of us were born, In 1860, New York City was a city of 805,000 people, 393,000, give or take a few I'm sure, were actually foreigners and immigrants. Interesting to note. And at that time, they, they commissioned a team of experts to project and to consider what will the future of New York City be and what will New York City look like a hundred years and so those clever individuals got together and looked at graphs and projections and trajectories and transport and so on and they came to this conclusion about New York City that in a hundred years time New York City will no longer exist and the very informed reason that they gave for that was because in a hundred years time New York City will require in terms of moving people around six million horses and therefore the city will not cope with all the manure and based on that insight, New York City will no longer exist. <laughs> By 1900, some 40 years later, there were 1,001 car manufacturing plants in America. And today, New York needs no introduction. 850, uh, eight, eight and a half million people in one of the world's main cities. And the point behind that is that we can get so locked into the present We can be so short-sighted and we can believe that things as they are or as they have been are our limitation. And we do not foresee that some new inventions or some God-breakings can come in, and and that the future can look very different to the way it is presently or the way that it's been. In 1994, during that particular flavor of the move of the Spirit, I I had a, a particular experience where I went into a trance For a long period of time, and people might think, oh, you're hearing a lot from God. And all I heard was this statement. There is no reason to believe that the future cannot be different to the past. There is no reason to believe that the future cannot be different to the past. And there was no doubt in my mind it was with regards to South Africa. So let us in 2016, as we consider the future of this nation and this region and this continent, not be locked into a mentality like that team of experts in New York in 1860, where we are so limited by the way things have been that the future, although it will never be totally unhinged from the past, can be spectacularly different. Not just, oh, we've made it or it's not too bad or we've survived. But actually, we need to start to imagine prophetically an amazing future. The kind of future that we want our children and our children's children to live in. Perhaps even a place where the rand totally reverses in value. I thought that would get everyone going. In this past week, Michael Cassidy has put out an email and he says this. Pessimism can never be the posture of a Christian. And nor are we ever relieved of the responsibility daily to pray, Thy kingdom come, thou will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that was my first introductory thought. The second is not my thought, Uh, it's it's God's thought. It's from Jeremiah chapter 18 verses 1 to 10. And I'm going to read that uh, in in its entirety because I believe that it's it's a scripture that is very ripe for South Africa and the continent at this particular time. It's entitled, in my, in, my, in my Bible, it's entitled, The Potter and the Clay. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, and go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are my hand. so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. But if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity that I plan to bring on it. Verse 9, or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in our sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. Basically, this potter has clay on the wheel. He intends to make a certain vessel, but the clay does not cooperate. And so he makes Something different. And it can be that over a nation, God intends to do good over a nation and to bring it into fullness and prosperity. But if that nation does not heed the voice of God, he can change his mind and re- rework it. And so, on the other hand, God might determine that he's got, he needs to bring judgment against a particular nation. But if a nation like Nineveh, like the city of Nineveh did, repents, God will change his mind with regards to that. And so what that does for me is it shows that the future of any nation, but we live in this particular nation, The future of the nation is not inevitable, nor is it unconditional. It requires an appropriate response. So this is a particular scripture that I've been looking at for some years now, and I love it. I say amen to it when I read it, and I think that that applies too that person over there and that politician and those people who, who practice certain demonic practices and those people who practice idolatry. I love the scripture. But when those concentric circles come and tangle around me and I realize, ouch, maybe it's me. Isaiah chapter 6, whoa, 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 whoa. Suddenly I get a bit more uncomfortable. Perhaps I'm blinded to my privilege. Perhaps I'm blinded to my idolatry. Perhaps I'm blinded to the way that things have always been. The status quo has blinded me to convictions. And I need others to help me and to show me. So the four, the four points that I want to bring through this morning are prayer, watch your words, engage, and faith-filled vision. Those are going to be the four points. So the first one, pray. And uh, Wally has touched on this morning, and I know that you're on day 30 or 40 of prayer, and uh, you're a house that is well steeped in prayer, so I don't need to say much on this particular topic, and I, I also spent this last few days down in Cape Town with a few people, including Graham Power, and was reminded I got a nice personally signed a book from Grandpa Power about the global day of prayer. And I just read through it on the way home on the plane. And, you know, at its peak, 300 million people around the world praying on one day. Amazing. Starting from the vision and the obedience of one man in, in, in Newlands Rugby Stadium. 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says that we are to pray for those in authority. Why? In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness, And dignity. Why wouldn't that be nice? That is the reason we pray for our leaders. And let us not fall into the trap that speaking about our leaders, criticizing our leaders, reading the newspapers, and gossiping is the same as prayer. I know that Romans chapter 13 says, be subject to those in authority. But we also, at the same time as praying for our nation, our leaders need to be praying for ourselves. And Tim Keller says that the basic purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, but to bend my will into His. So we can get down on our hands and knees or whatever posture to pray for our nation, but we have to have ears, internal ears open to hear what God might be saying to us because we can pray, we can intercede, we can whatever our style is of prayer and we can say, Lord, you need to do this or this and this and he might be saying, yeah, but I want to do this in you first. So James chapter 3 speaks about two different types of wisdom, a wisdom that is earthly and natural and a wisdom that is heavenly and spiritual. And one of the dimensions of the wisdom that is from above is that it's willing to yield. That applies In our marriages, it applies in our households with our children, willing to yield, a willingness to repent, a willingness willingness to think and act differently into the future, and to break ranks with the status quo and what has become or been the norm for us, a willingness to yield. Let's pray. That was quick. They're not all going to be as quick as that. The second one is watch your words. I've no doubt in this house uh, for many years that you have been taught and referred to the fact as Proverbs 19 refers that the words that we speak have the power of life and they have the power of death. And that can apply in a marriage, how we speak to our spouse, how we speak to our children, how we speak to those at work, and also how we speak over a nation. And I think we very often speak with tongues, because we can get up early in the morning to come to pray or however we pray or whenever we pray and then we can go to work and we can actually undo the good that we've done in prayer by actually cursing our nation by the words that we speak. The words that we speak over coffee, over lunches, at dinner parties, that popular narrative that is very easy just to flow with. Our words are not inconsequential. Words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And if we add up the sum total of our words, we've got to consider what are we doing to our nation. I'm sure you'd agree with me that it doesn't take a lot of skill or a lot of energy to just parrot the popular narrative amongst our peers, those who are similar to us. It's easy. Perhaps a little bit more energy and skill and intellect to analyze things that are going on and that's that's good and reasonable we are we are to use our minds but it does take a whole lot more energy a whole lot more faith and a whole lot more prophetic imagination to speak of a whole new reality that is not limited by current or temporary circumstances that is a whole different story and that is not about putting our head in the sand and ignoring the facts and refusing to read and to to see what's going on around us because i don't think that that's biblical but to to be biblically and Holy Spirit-inspired with a life-giving, faith-infused perspective that gives life and encouragement to all those who hear. Because so often it really is just an issue of focus. We also never want to get into presumption about proclaiming things that are not necessarily of God. They've got to be things that are birthed in prayer. They've got to align with Scriptures. We don't want to just be talking hot air or wishful thinking or presumption because that's also dangerous. So, first point is prayer. The second point is watch our words. I'm also amazed as our, my, our children grow up um, and uh, you, they have their friends around and so on, you listen. You're driving and you're doing lifts after sports and you're listening to the, the boys or the girls speak and you think that's not what you think, that's what your parents think. You're just saying exactly what you hear, you hear your parents saying at home. We've got to realize that by our words, we are shaping the attitudes of our, of our children, which they will carry with them most likely for a long period of time. The third point is engage. And I'm going, to, I'm going to camp around this for a little while. This will be the main point that I, I would like to deal with this morning. And uh, for me as a young man, as, as, as Wally said, growing up in a, in a church in Westfall and a prophetic and, and very bold and, and, and brave leadership, um, we in the early, late 1980s and early 1990s really got a word, a prophetic word about justice and righteousness in our country. How can, can we as believers remain a white, middle-class church in the middle of a suburb without engaging with the challenges that they were in South Africa at that time? Name uh, apartheid. And uh, one of the, the personal scriptures that really God drove home for me and really informed living in Chesterville as Wally um, alluded to was uh, Ezekiel chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 3. Uh, at the end of Ezekiel chapter 2, God says, Eat the scroll to Ezekiel. And he eats it, and it says it was full of mourning, lament, and woe, and it was bitter to his taste. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, again, eat the scroll, and it's as sweet as honey to his mouth, and it brings healing. And for me, my understanding was that you cannot bring the word of God and healing into the nation or into your situation unless you've actually tasted of things as they really are. It's part of a prophetic process, and it goes on in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 15, to say that Ezekiel sat amongst exiles. He sat amongst them with his mouth closed and he was overwhelmed. And so we got drawn into our whole uh, course as a church and uh, it really enriched our world, but also caused some consternation amongst us and some uh, challenges. And then in the last year, or just over a year ago, we know that uh, Durban was faced amongst other cities, Johannesburg in particular, with the challenge of xenophobia. And uh, it was wonderful to see the response of churches and NGOs, a united response um, that came. uh, And uh, we we started a a process called Durban Dialogues, which was a cross-section of churches and NGOs who started dialoguing. And it's actually led to it becoming adopted as a a UNHCR-funded and backed uh, course uh, or um, process process. Uh, we were involved in some uh, dialogues in, in, some of the, uh, in some of the townships where there's been conflict between foreigners and, and local people. And it was amazing to sit around in a circle to be doing this dialogue and to have the United Nations observers sitting there watching and observing the church take the lead in bringing unity where there's been division. But what that did do was just reignite and remind me about the incredible need for us to open our ears to listen to stories that are not our own. There's an African proverb which says that a man who never travels thinks that his mother is the best cook. (laughs) And we can get locked into stories that are all very similar. And we actually impoverish ourselves when we do not listen to stories that are markedly different to our own. And listen to perspectives that are not only different but a confrontation to the way that we've always thought and seen the world. So, as an example, we have a man. In fact, he's ministering in our church this morning. He's a Rwandan man who was involved in the genocide, involved, a, a, a victim in the genocide in, in Rwanda, spent eight months in the forest of the DRC, three months alone, traveled down, has got the most incredible story. And I sit and I listen to him. We just traveled up to Maputo to do some uh, seminars up there. And I, I can listen to his stories the whole way there and the whole way back. I think, my goodness. My life is enriched by listening to stories that are not my own. It's not about who won the rugby, with all due respect to rugby players and former rugby players. um, But listen to stories that are not our own. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame to him. Is that true of us sometimes that we give an answer before we fully heard what the other person is trying to say? especially if it conflicts with our way of thinking. Same proverb, chapter, chapter verse 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So there's more than one sign to every story. There's at least two. And too often I think that we believe that we know the answers and we haven't even yet fully understood what the question is. And we revert and default back to well worn arguments and tracks of thinking that are easy to maintain when they're circulating amongst the same people. So, we did a course earlier this year uh, called Race, Racism, and Reconciliation. We got various voices to come in and to speak to, to the situation. Um, but, right in the very, as we kicked off the series, um, I, I spoke about the very key ingredients. ...to a process of, of dealing with racism and reconciliation. And they are these, eyes, Two eyes, To see people. to feet. To walk. To move out of a circle that is comfortable... ...or a seat in a particular place... ...and to actually walk into arenas which are fresh. Hands to reach out. A mouth to ask questions... A zip to zip our mouth sometimes while we listen with our two ears, and then a wheelbarrow of humility and grace to recognize that maybe the slice of the pie that we've had in our perspective was not the whole perspective. I note that silence. In the natural, in our own personal lives, when it comes to relationships, the way that we think, the way that we process things, we know. I believe that repentance, as difficult as difficult and uncomfortable as it is in the moment, leads to greater freedom. It leads to ecstasy because we're taking off things that are ill-fitting, that do not correspond to our true self, and we actually work progressively into freedom. And if that implies in our personal lives and in our interpersonal relationships, it's got to apply to how we are in dealing with issues of the nation. So, Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, we all know it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is actually a very hard hitting, radical, revolutionary, all consuming, life changing passage if we actually unpack it. Because too often we're applying this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, to literally those who live in my neighborhood and those who are in the same social circles. But we know that the lawyer in Luke chapter 10 asks Jesus, Well, and who is my neighbor? Thinking that he'll catch Jesus out. And of course, Jesus catches him out big time with the story of the Good Samaritan. So we know my neighbor can be someone different to me, someone diametrically opposed to me. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does this require of me? Scripture says that we cannot say that we love God and then not love our brother. Well, who is my brother? Is it someone just with the same surname? Is it someone who just went to the same school as me? Who plays in the same sports team as me? Or whose kids go to the same school? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks about the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given primarily to God. But once we've been reconciled to God, we are driven towards reconciliation with others. Who are the others? It has to include those who are different to myself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. A very, very useful scripture when raising kids. But what does that require of us in the context of the nation? No greater love has a man than this than to lay down his life for a friend and a woman for her friend. Maybe the same lawyer would say, Well, who are my friends? Consider others more important and better than yourself. Philippians chapter 2. This gospel is, is all consuming. It requires a lot of us. It doesn't just stroke us, it doesn't just pat us on the head and have, say, Have a nice week. It, 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 it's a confrontation, it's self sacrificial, it's the very essence of the gospel. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 7 says, The righteous care about justice for the poor. And it's not only that scripture, there's many. And as much as the scriptures do require us to be involved in charity and giving and helping those who perhaps cannot help themselves or those who are in desperate situations, this scripture says the righteous care about justice for the poor. And justice is central to these scriptures. Justice and righteousness In fact, the reason those two words are used repeatedly together is because they actually come from the same word, the same Hebrew word which has morality and equity. And I think we've majored on morality and perhaps we've been weak on recognizing that the foundation of justice and righteousness also requires us to at least engage with the challenge of equity and justice in our nation. So there's the well-known anecdote or example, do not give a person a fish, rather give them, teach them how to fish so they can fish for themselves. But perhaps the question goes broader to say, well, let's discuss who owns the lake and why. And who decides who fishes where and who decides who lives where and who issues the licenses I know that that's very heavy for a Sunday morning. But we've got, we've got to take the conversation further. Before 1994, I remember seeing the sticker, the bumper sticker, if you want peace, work for justice. It applies today, in 2016, just as much. If you want peace, work for justice. Archbishop Camara of South America once, it's it's a quote I'm sure many of us have heard, when I feed the poor people call me a saint. But when I ask why are the poor poor they call me a communist. There's uh, five lines I'm going to read to you here. Something called bicycle theology which sounds all very simple. It's a Reverend police in And it goes like this. There were two boys living opposite each other. John stole a bicycle from Tom. And then after a year, John came to Tom and said, Tom, I stole your bicycle, and what I need now is reconciliation. So Tom looked at John and said, well, where's my bicycle? And John said, no, I'm not talking about your bicycle. I'm talking about reconciliation. Normally in church we say amen, but I think that's more ouch. <laughs> and then, ironically, when I shared this, a, a certain lawyer who I have a very high regard for in our church came to him, he said, well, it's not as simple as that. And I agree, it's not as simple as that. I know it's multi-generational, etc., etc., But we cannot hide behind the complexity, to, uh, the complexity of it Sorry, and escape the kernel of this, which is potentially true and demanding of me. What do I need to do differently? How do I need to think differently? How do I need to act differently? What must I do with privilege that I've inherited or privilege that I, that I operate in, whatever it might be? And you can have your counter-arguments. Uh, I come here really just to, to throw these thoughts out, perhaps agitate our thinking a bit. I'm sure irritate some of you, but uh, I trust it's the Word that's doing it and not me. I hide behind it. And it's not my place to give answers to this. I'm just, I'm throwing it out there, and it's something that I have to work out in my own life together with my wife and kids, and something that we have to work out in our own local church. I'll just push the ball to the leadership. So let me push it, the, let me just push it a little bit further. We, 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 we may be here, if you're reading the same newspapers and listening to the same commentary, that, that land is an issue in South Africa. And I have, I have, do not claim to be any expert or understand anything beyond what I'm sure most of you understand. But what I am utterly convinced about is that if we do not have good upstanding spirit filled believers engaging in this space around land and justice then the EFF for example is which we know they are and we might be disappointed with the outcome note the silence. Uh, and I'm, I'm just saying we've got to engage. If you talk in certain circles, this is a hot issue. And, and if we just follow arms and either just hope for the best or just assume it will go away, it, it isn't going to go away. And it, it's, it's, it's an attractor of people who feel that they've been dispossessed in the past. I'm not saying I know the outcome, but I am utterly convinced that it's an argument and a discussion that we should be utterly engaged in, especially those who are, who are, who are wired that way or, or have the opportunity We also, I believe, need to be informed about our past. And again, I know that that irritates some people who say, well, come on, when are we going to let go of the past? But as Professor Jonathan Janssen once said in a column, the present did not arrive in a vacuum. The way things are today in South Africa did not just start like that. They did not start in 1994. They did not start last year. There's a whole process. And if we're going to engage and be effective in this nation, we must engage with our past. I'm not saying we must be bound by it. I'm not saying we must forever revisit it. But I do believe that we need to be sensitive to how we have arrived to where we are today. You can take me to task on that if you want to. That's absolutely fine. I'm happy to be wrong. But And i just take one anecdote out of many. But I don't know how many of us are aware that Winnie Mandela, not everyone's favorite person, I realize... Not vindicating or justifying anything that she might have done. But she spent 18 months in solitary confinement. And at times naked. Going through monthly cycles naked in a prison cell by herself. Having been taken in the middle of the night while her two daughters stood on the lawn and her husband was in jail. Put yourself in that situation. That happens in Amshwanga Rocks. And someone gets taken from and, and, and feel the hair rise. It's just something for us to be aware of factors that have shaped where we are today. not trying to throw the past back up again, but I do believe we need to engage with our past in order to understand where we are and to start shaping towards the future. So, to finish this point about engage, as believers, we simply cannot pray a prayer, sit back, fold our arms, watch the news, hope for the best, and adopt a wait-and-see attitude, because I think we'll be disappointed. James, the epistle of James is very clear that faith and works go hand in hand. We cannot say I have faith and not, not, and not works. We can, it's not works for salvation, but it's works that come out of salvation. We need to do things. We need to do something. We need to do things. The whole gospel makes this requirement of us. It's not an optional extra for those who've got spare time. It's not an optional extra for those who are slightly more committed. And it's not an optional extra for those who are wired that way. It's a prerequisite of the whole gospel. That saves us. Okay, are you all with me? Have I lost everyone? Okay, is everyone with me? I hope you are. So as I said, I, I hope I've been as gracious as possible. Every single one of those cutting comments applies to me. My final point. So the first one was prayer. The second one was watch your words. The third one was engage. The fourth one, which is going to be a bit shorter just to land, is have a faith-filled vision for the future. And uh, perhaps not everyone has the same vision. We all pick up on, on, on various aspects because of the way we, we the, the, the sphere that we're involved in, in society, whether it's education or business or politics, whatever it might be. And please excuse me being personal here for a moment, but I think it does illustrate the point. Um, but uh, my wife Sandy and I, we have a vision for our, for our future. Um, Alan's niece, I'm, I'm married to her, and uh, we have a vision for, for our lives called Africa 2050. And we're saying to ourselves, what do we think or what do we believe Africa is going to look like in the year 2050? And what do we need to do about it? It's the place we want our children to live, to grow up with hopefully their children so that we have grandchildren. Not yet. But what is Africa going to look like in the year 2050? Because if we adopt a wait and see, we're likely to be disappointed. So in the year 2050, we will be 81. For some, it might need to be 2070. For some, it might need to be 2030. But what is our vision for the future? You know that if we aim at nothing, you hit it every time. And so when we when our kids were born, we t- we took we felt a real weight from God or an inspiration, whatever it is. And both of our children, our firstborn is called Hannah Africa, and our second born is Elijah our second born is named Elijah Africa. And we put Africa in there to say that we believe in the future of this nation. It's personal. But when we, when we look at our kids, when we speak to our kids, when the teachers write down their names, we are saying we believe in the future of this continent. We, we identify ourselves with this continent. I'm not saying it's for everyone to. I'm just saying it was what we did because we believe that God has called us to be here and that we have a positive hope for the future. I believe it's both in the natural you can look and spiritually and biblically you can look. When God designed Africa, this place, this continent where we lived, we don't go into Africa when we drive over the Limpopo or the Zambezi or the Tugela. We live. This is Africa. We live in Africa here. When God designed Africa, he did not make Africa to be poor. In Genesis, when God looked on everything and he said it is very good, it included Africa. And we know it's been well publicized in recent, in recent years that the outflows that go from Africa, illicit outflows, are anything between 50 and $80 billion a year. Totaling $1 trillion in the last 50 years, which is more than all the aid that's been given to Africa. God did not design or intend for Africa to be poor. The wealth, the mineral wealth under the soil in Africa still today is estimated at $2.5 trillion, which is about 37 trillion rand. We weren't designed to be poor. The demographics of our continent are both challenging and exciting. And if anything, it should, should instill a, a sense of the need for the church to stand up. But from 2015 to 2030, sorry, 2015 to, 20, to 2050, 35 years, half, more than half of global population growth is going to take place in Africa. And you can look at that as a, a negative or you can look at it as a potential positive. By 2030, Africa will have the largest working age population in the world. Over the same period of time, 2015 to 2050, Europe, the population of Europe will shrink. I know there's immigration and all those things and refugees. By 2050, 25% of the world's population will live in Africa. And so I could go on. Challenge and opportunity. In the year 1900, I know I'm going back before our time, I'm assuming, Although I attended a funeral the other day, a memorial of someone who was born in 1913. So, but in, in the year 1900, 10% of Africa was Christian. By the year 2000, 50% of Africans claimed to be Christian. And John Piper in his book says, perhaps it's the largest shift in religious affiliation that has ever occurred anywhere in the world. On top of that, Christianity grows by nearly 2.5% a year, which means it will double. In the next 30 years, resulting in the year 2050, that Christianity will chiefly be the religion of Africa and the African diaspora. Isn't that exciting? And this is this is the context where God has called us to administer the gospel, to preach the gospel, to plant churches, to establish churches. It's exciting. Urbanization at the moment. Bear with me, I know it's a Sunday morning, this might sound like a lecture, it's not meant to be, but there are 7,000 people per hour who are leaving and coming into cities. 7,000 people per hour, which, which means 5 million people a month forming a city the equivalent of Johannesburg, Singapore, or, um, or San Francisco. It's a lot of people. But what it is doing is it's concentrating multi, multinational, multi-ethnic people into the same space and provides, once again, challenge and opportunity for the church. The need for new churches to be planted. The need for us to do church differently. Churches are going to be more multicultural, more multi-ethnic, more multilingual as we come together. And unless we try and avoid it. People of diverse backgrounds are being forced into living in the same space. Durban, three and a half million people, an East African port city, which is multinational, multicultural, multilingual, multiracial, multi-lots of things, multilingual. It's an incredible opportunity. And there's a lot of good things happening in Durban. A lot, of, a lot of good things, a lot of prayers, I believe, that have not just been prayed in recent weeks, but in years and decades before, of generations before, those prayers have come now. I believe they're opening a space that the church in Durban is walking into. I'm not going to go into the detail of it, but I really believe that. So we need to make sure that we train our eyes, we train our minds to see the image of God, the fingerprint of God in Africa. Not just the landscape, not just the natural beauty, the resources, but her people who are her truest wealth and value. Which I I know, I, I feel almost embarrassed to say that because it's so basic. So, as I come into land, I started off with a New York City story. When we imagine the future... When we consider what the possibilities, the prophetic possibilities can be, not only for our nation or our city, but for our region, what gets stirred up? What are the possibilities of a future that is not locked into, we'll always use horses as transport, therefore? Not seeing that God can break in and that designs can come and we can have new technologies. Some of us might have been praying and prophesying for many years and start saying, Wow, well, my arms are growing weary. I'm getting a little bit hoarse. Uh, you know, I, I'm not seeing the fulfillment. We are well aligned with many other prophets who had to wait decades, multiple decades, for prophecies to be fulfilled. Just because it hasn't been fulfilled yet does not mean it isn't. But we have in our recent history seen the earnest and fervent prayers pre-1994 create a miracle in our nation. And we need to remember that. We need to remember what God is capable of, both through what the Word teaches us and through what we have experienced. God has given us reason to have hope. But it is another crossroads, I believe, personally. And it's a a crossroads in our nation where the church needs to be wide awake and aware. The sons of Issachar and Chronicles who were aware of the times in which they were living and what Israel should do. So what are the prophetic possibilities that we can dream of, believe for, speak of, sing about, and pray into into existence in faith? Times are ripe. I think there's prayer initiative and many other things that are happening. Well, because the times are ripe, there there is a, a weight of burden and responsibility but also incredible opportunity that comes out of prayer when people feel that you're up against you're up at the coal face. we know from biblically Old Testament when Hannah was, was barren she prayed prayers that she would never have prayed if it wasn't for the challenge that she was facing and so we have that opportunity now in this nation once again to pray prayers I remember being in prayer meetings pre-1994 thinking this is unrealistic I can't believe what I'm praying and we saw a lot of it come to pass. But like any fruit that is ripe on a tree, there's the danger of it becoming overripe if it is not, plucked, if it is not picked and falling off the tree. And I, I believe we are at, a, at, a, at an exciting but also a somber time where we need to recognize that the church needs to stand up and engage with issues and take a lead in conversations and dialogues. We don't have to agree with everything that's being said. We don't have to but we've got to engage because iron sharpens iron it's not it's not a, it's not an argument to win an argument it's engaging to try and get closer to each other and to the truth the church cannot withdraw from that conversation it's not a time for us to do church as usual it's not a time for us just to think the status quo We've got to respond in faith, and we've got to respond with prophetic imagination. Pray, watch our words, engage and have a faithful vision for the future. Amen. Can I ask us to stand, please? Lord, when we we look at Scripture, we know that you ordain nations and where people will live. Deuteronomy 32, Acts 17, James chapter 4, it's recorded that you determine the times and the seasons, where and when we're going to be living. There's no small chance that we live in this city, in this nation, in this continent at this time. And we want to be those, Lord, who stand to attention. We want to be those who stand with our eyes open to see what's going on, our ears open to hear what you are saying to us, our sleeves rolled up ready to do what you require of us, feet that are ready to move, mouths that are ready to pray and prophesy and speak and ask questions and engage in conversations, even if they are uncomfortable. But the season requires it of us. This is not a time for the church to stand back and allow other sectors of society to lead. It's not a time for the church to adopt a wait and see. We have to take the lead. And where we have abdicated responsibility and assume that somebody else will do it, Lord, we need to repent. I thank you for the incredible synergy that has taking place amongst churches in Durban at this time. The cooperation, the collaboration, the sense of wars coming down between churches is an incredible space to be involved in. But I pray, Lord, that more wars will come down. There'll be increased collaboration and cooperation. There'll be more conversations between people from diverse and, and, and varied backgrounds so that truly the church can become a city on the hill and a light to this nation and to this city. So, Lord, once again, I pray that if there's anything that I've shared this morning that is of my own natural reasoning or is not aligned with your word, Lord, then I just pray that people will be discerning to, to, to know what to do with it, Lord. But to the extent that I've ministered under your, under your authority and your word, I pray, Lord, that that word will have an effect and will not return void. It will take root in our hearts and produce the fruit that, the fruit that you require of it. That we would know how we, as your sons and daughters, should live in this nation at this time. Thank you for the wisdom of the leadership of this church as they continue to lead in the city and play such a significant role as they have for so many years. I pray for wisdom for the way forward and how to engage effectively with the challenges and the needs of the hour. In the name of Jesus. Amen.